The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Apple's fiscal Q1 results blow past estimates and its shares rally. Yahoo will spin off its Alibaba stake tax-free and China's stocks fall after industrial companies' profits slump. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll ask Sean Darby of Jefferies about the market sell-off in the U.S. Then RTHK's South Asia correspondent Murli Krishnan fills us in on the business outcome of President Obama's visit to India. And Brooke McConnell of South Ocean Management gives us the lowdown on investments in China. Stuart Altcroft of City Trust joins us as co-host this morning. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So, Stuart, <laughs> uh, the entire northeast of the United States has come to a halt with a blizzard that uh, turned out not to be as drastic as they uh, had anticipated. Have we had uh, that kind of emergency uh, called here in Hong Kong with typhoons? Uh, yes, it's fairly similar, I guess, isn't it? Uh, but there's as cold ours as windy and wet. Uh, so, yes, a difficult time, obviously, in North, North America, but yeah. uh, they're used to it. Good as time we are. to uh, stay home and bundle up. Um, yeah, the good excuse, right? Good excuse, indeed. <laughs> and uh, markets were down. Yeah, uh, the quite S&P, a quite a mm. bit, quite a bit. Mm. The S&P, uh, the Dow, and the NASDAQ were all in the red. The Dow dropped uh, 1.7% to 17,000. 387, led down by Microsoft and Caterpillar. The S&P 500 dropped uh, 1.3% to 2,029, and the Nasdaq shed 90 points to 4,681. Here's what uh, PIMCO's Executive Vice President Tony Crescenzi makes of the sell-off. Markets are down because earnings for a number of prominent companies are, didn't come in as good as some expected. And it reflects the strengthening of the dollar. Now, remember, of course, there's over a million corporations in the United States. The focus in markets will tend to be on the biggest companies, for example, the S&P 500. And, of course, then if there's any negative news associated with some of the things that have given investors anxiety recently, it can affect markets negatively. And that's what's happened today. That said, many of the indicators that we point to generally for a weaker market were slightly reversed today. Oil is up uh, 2.5% uh, Brent crude oil and the US dollar is just slightly weaker against the euro. So how does this correlate to stocks? Consider that the, the move in oil and, of course, the, the move in the dollar means movement of capital, money moving around the world in different manners, of course. And uh, think of it as a, some form of creative destruction. Some money will go into from one pocket into another. Look today, for example, very importantly, at the Consumer Confidence Index released by the Conference Board, the highest since 2007, and some key readings there, the highest since 2005 in terms of expectations and uh, beliefs about the job market in terms of jobs, job availability. The weight of the, uh, on the, the, shoulder, the weight of the economy will probably be on the consumer's shoulders this year. Uh, we uh, durable goods report this morning helps to highlight that. And so we should stay focused on the, the beneficiaries of the drop in oil, the beneficiaries of this movement of capital. In the end, the United States will be a, a, the, one of the key beneficiaries, India 
for example, and looking at the emerging markets is another one. Uh, but the sharp rise in consumer confidence is a clear example of, of this uh, disruption and how it can be very beneficial. But, but for now, markets are looking at the negative aspects because they're more prominent. Ultimately, that fades. And consider what was said by New York Fed President Bill Dudley, one of the most powerful members of the Fed. He said each $20 drop in the price of oil would be a $670 billion boost to the global economy. Uh, it's fallen $50, so that's over $1.5 trillion boost. Uh, but that money comes out of someone's pocket. And- now, coming to emerging markets, Russia, as we know, has had its credit rating cut to junk by S&P. And that's just no good. Uh, Catherine Young is the investment director for equities at Fidelity Worldwide. Here's what she says. It's not good for overall emerging markets, but it just goes to show that not all emerging markets are the same. Right. So you have Russia on one hand, but then late last year and throughout last year, you had the Philippines being upgraded. So it's really about identifying both the markets, the stocks, and also the overall economic health of the various emerging markets. And that's where we think Asia is different from the rest of other emerging markets, for example. You know, when you look at the agendas, whether it's the Chinese or the Indians, having a reforms agenda and actually implementing this agenda will be key. Going, going forward. I think people like to be doom and gloom on China. Yeah, It's a big bad wolf. And actually, when you look at the companies, so the, the companies we're talking to at the moment, they have a cautious view, but this is very much reflected in the market. Now, this is the third year of the current leadership, and so, as I mentioned earlier, it really is about implementation. But, for example, if you look at the reforms agenda, state-owned enterprise reform has gone very, very quiet. But it yes. doesn't mean it's not happening. doesn't mean we're not True. finding some really, really interesting state-owned enterprises to invest in. Yeah. The rise of the Chinese consumer. I mean, this story isn't going away anytime soon. So uh, everybody appears to be overweight U.S. right now. Europe looks pretty good because of the ECB injection. What about Asia? Asia, I think, has very much been ignored. So I was even talking to our trading desk a couple of months ago, and they were saying back in 2013, you know, 2014 even, you didn't have to look at Asia because you had all these opportunities in the U.S., in Japan, in Europe. But that's not the case anymore. I don't think you can ignore what's going on in China, in India, across ASEAN. So if anything, I think you'll see money coming back towards our part of the world this year. So let's bring in uh, Sean Darby, who is our guest this morning. Sean is a a chief global equity strategist at Jefferies. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Sean, uh, let's start with the U.S. What do you make of the slightly weaker U.S. dollar against the euro and slight rise in oil prices at the close last night? Well, I think certainly we've got to very, very overbought conditions on the dollar. And similarly, I think we've had some pretty oversold conditions on the on oil. And it's been a popular trade to short oil and go long the dollar. Uh, and I think uh, that's pretty much that trade has pretty much played itself out. And there's also been the same, the feedback loops in which, uh, to some extent, uh, we're already getting the headlines of what the impact of a strong dollar is on is on the economy and earnings. And that suggests that I think traders would probably want to be less uh, less bullish on the dollar going forward. Now, uh, the uh, slight rise in the price of oil is this at all an indicator that we might see a further rise? Is what do you think? I'm less inclined to believe we're in a sort of start of a bull trend for oil. I think production numbers in the U.S. for oil are going to still remain very robust over the next 24 months. And I think that's still going to weigh on on oil. And 
And I think really it's still a, a supply side issue for oil rather than a demand one. And I think uh, oil and alongside other energy products like uh, coal will, will remain relatively weak. It's all about supply and less about, uh, less about demand. So weakness. Now, what about Russia? Um, we've got here a problem with weak oil prices and then we have these sanctions but it's also rare for a country with such uh, low debt levels can you give us some insight well um russia um is of course you know 80 percent of its um economy and exports are uh, devoted to to oil and and gas and um clearly it's been the, the most affected i think the one thing i would say is that um over the last 15 years uh, russia's run a current account surplus uh, it has been much the country has been much more fiscally disciplined over the last four years so in a sense um the russians can in a sense um over the next two years at least um use their sovereign wealth funds and their own fx reserves to cover any shortfall for debt servicing or indeed repayments i think it's the problems go out the problems for russia sort of um, manifest themselves perhaps through 2018 if oil prices remain where they are at the moment oh that's a stretch uh, what about um you know a lot of the private companies in russia are they affected many of them are in a pretty good position but the sanctions doesn't make it easy to invest I think that, I think you're right. I think the the difficulty is for Russia is that in, it does require some uh, foreign investment. In fact, uh, up until the um, uh, the sanctions, actually, foreign direct investment into Russia was actually quite uh, quite robust. Um, I think it's really a matter of refinancing the closure of uh, a lot of the euro dollar markets to Russian companies has come has come at the very wrong time as oil prices have fallen. I think that's more of an issue in the short term. Uh, but as I said earlier, I think they, they at least have the ability to you tap their sovereign wealth funds and the FX reserves to cover them in that in that in that that, that short period. But overall, uh, Russia comes out as being one of the worst affected. But I think you know it's a, it's a story that's going to play itself out in other countries such as Brazil later on. Stuart, did you want to get in on this? Um, I just wanted to ask you with the change or the new king in Saudi Arabia, um, he's already declared no change to policy, but do you think that's um, just to keep him going in the first couple of months and then there will be a change? Um, It's a very good question. I think the way we would look at it is that... um uh, Saudi being the lowest cost operator is the most dominant within OPEC in, in being able to run the cartel. And I think it has a lot of ability and, and time on its side to keep to run with low oil prices. And I think it's, um, it has a, an agenda in which it wants to um, remove the marginal oil producers out of, out of, the, out of the picture. And I think for the, at least for the next 18 months, Saudi's quite happy uh, to see oil prices where they are if indeed the, it, um, its objectives have met. So I think uh, I, don't, I don't think there'll be any change in OPEC's policy over the next 18 to 24 months. So this is a recovery in, in some respects of the strength of OPEC as opposed to the other producers? That, that's correct. Um, in fact, if you look um, um, outside of uh, Saudi, both Russia now and, and the U.S. are in a, in a similar uh, um, production numbers as Saudi. So um, these two members being outside of OPEC have sort of dominated supply. And I think uh, uh, Saudi wants to ensure that it ha- still runs the, runs the cartel.
All right, Sean, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Sean Darby. He is Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. The Nikkei is down half a percent to 17,682. Australia's ASX index is uh, down, excuse me, four points to 5,506. And Seoul's Kospi also down five points to 1,946. Euro to the U.S. is 1.13 this morning. Uh, The U.S. dollar is trading at 117 yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 76 cents. If you're thinking of using pesticides, you should first look into the pest problem and consider other measures like improving hygiene. If pesticides are really needed, only use appropriate and registered products and follow the instructions on the label. Don't spray pesticides near naked flames, wall sockets, and running electrical appliances. And keep them away from children, pets, and food. Always use pesticides safely and properly. Time is now 8.15 a.m. And concluding his three-day visit, U.S. President Barack Obama has announced $4 billion of new initiatives aimed at boosting trade and investment ties, as well as jobs in India. And he's opened up a whole new source of financing for social development ventures in the country through a new Indian diaspora investment initiative. And in return, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has promised to open business environment, uh, promised, excuse me, an open business environment, a predictable tax regime, and to remove remaining uncertainties to U.S. businesses as President Obama raised issues of trade barriers and intellectual property while seeking the ease of doing business in India. Joining us from New Delhi now is South Asia correspondent Murli Krishnan, who has more on this important visit and what it means for both countries. Good morning, Murli. Good morning. So, Murli, what are the big takeaways from this visit by President Obama and uh, economic ties posed to grow? I would imagine so, given the fact that this trip was very high on symbolism, and we really want to know whether the, you know, the substance is also uh, is something which can be really factored. But this $4 billion deal, uh, which, which was concluded, that includes about $2 billion of leverage financing for renewable energy investments in India through the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, I mean, a billion dollars in loans for small and medium businesses across India, and this is through the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And separately, the, the U.S. Export-Import Bank, that is ex- uh, supposed to finance a billion dollars to support Made in America exports in India over the next two years. And Obama has announced that the two U.S. trade missions will be in India this year with a specific focus on infrastructure such as you know, development in rail, roads, ports, and airports. And, and what is important here to note is that though U.S. exports to India you know, have, go, have grown by nearly 35% since 2010, and, and this supports almost about 170,000 well-paying American jobs, that still constitutes just about 1% of the U.S. total exports. But nevertheless, there is, uh, I mean, there is the fact that this is an a, a important visit in the, in the sense that this is the first time a U.S. president is attending a Republic Day function, the first time a U.S. president is uh, coming to India twice in his tenure. So there are many uh, uh, firsts to, um, uh, to this visit. And 
and uh, 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 President Obama had to say this at the India-US CEO forum when he met up with the top honchos up from both sides. Prime Minister Modi has brought uh, new energy and vigor to redesigning uh, the architecture here in uh, India so that more business, greater growth, greater investment uh, can take place. And uh, what I'm excited about is the fact that not only uh, do we have a lot of U.S. businesses who are interested in investing in India, but we also have a lot of Indian companies who are already investing in the United States and want to do more business. So, uh, Murli, we know that uh, Prime Minister Modi has won his election on a promise of development and more employment opportunities. What's the assurance that he has held out uh, to attract from U.S. investments? Well, that's a, that's a very good question in the sense that, you know, everyone knows that uh, Prime Minister Modi got elected in the idea of creating million jobs a month and improving the quality of life of the people in the country. I mean, I think he has, I mean, he has not really exactly spelled out his roadmap, but there are three ways to do that. He thinks that U.S. Co- companies can bring in capital, technology, and, uh, and IT in manufacturing, tourism, and infrastructure. And this, you know, in this eight months, you know, he has taken a number of initiatives to improve the business climate in the country and also got new announcements on foreign direct investment on railways, defense, and insurance. So we are, we are still, the fact is, a lot, of this is a lot of this is still what many people think is electoral rhetoric, and we're really waiting to see whether all this is, can be translated into action. But this is what, you know, uh, Narendra Modi, uh, when he also addressed a similar for, uh, the same forum which, which Obama was, he assured the investors at that same forum, and this is what he had to say. We are conscious of our challenges but also inspired by our many successes. And we have the energy of our youth, the enterprise of our business, and the genius of our farmers. Above all, we have the confidence and optimism of the nation. To this audience, I hardly need to spell out the series of bold steps that we have taken. My message to you, it this. You will find environment that is not only open, but also welcoming. We will guide you and work with you in your projects. So, Murli, in 20 seconds or less, do you think we're going to see some results on the ground? Well, that's a million-dollar question. I mean, over the weekend, President Barack Obama and his and Prime Minister Modi whether they turned a corner, for, whether, whether the meetings and the, uh, between both sides have to, turned a corner for the United States and India is still, is still important. But what is important is the symbolism, the fact that resolve that they have decided to take on, especially on the long-stalled nuclear deal that was for years kept U.S. nuclear power companies from doing business in India. All that is important right now. The, the devil is in the detail. And I think if India can remove some of the trade barriers as well as the IPR issues raised by America, I think there is a win-win situation. All right, Murli, thank you so much for your contribution this morning. That is Murli Krishnan. He is RTHK's South Asia correspondent.
Well, Chinese stocks broke a five-day winning streak yesterday as Hong Kong and Shanghai markets both pulled back amid concerns fueled by a drop in the profit growth at uh, major Chinese industrial companies and a previous sharp fall for China's yuan. Uh, let's bring in Brooke McConnell, who is the, ch- uh, the president and chief investment officer at South Ocean Management Limited. Good morning, Brooke. Good morning, Renina. So, uh, Brooke, can you take us through this pullback yesterday, um, you know, affected certainly by uh, a drop in the profit growth at uh, Chinese industrials? Well, the pullback is is mainly because you've had such a huge rise uh, in the Shanghai stock market. It's just been phenomenal. Um, and, and, and therein, uh, the stocks now are, you know, some stocks are selling at 50, 60, 70 times earnings. So there, there, there's definitely a need for a correction, a consolidation. And I believe that there are some uh, pundits on the China market that are suggesting, you know, another six months of consolidation. We're focused on the Hong Kong stock market and as it relates to stocks that are doing business up in uh, up in China more. Okay, so, um, you know, pullback is natural. It's to be expected. Um, the Hong Kong stock market, I mean, uh, the analysts uh, all over and certainly on this show have been expecting to see a rise in Hong Kong stocks uh, right from the beginning of this year, perhaps as a result of the sharp rally uh, in the Shanghai Composite all of last year. Uh, but it hasn't ris- risen as much as expected, perhaps. What do you make of this? Yeah, that's a good question. We're all scratching our heads. Maybe, January uh, effect? Just doldrums? Um, you know, uh, I, I've been in Hong Kong for 24 years, and I don't think I've seen as much skepticism as there are amongst uh, Hong Kong investors as there is today. You know, it was top, you know, it was topped off by the Occupy movement, and it's just there's not much optimism here. The markets have been flat for five years at ten times earnings, so uh, you know, there's just um, skepticism here, huge skepticism. What we're seeing is that Hong Kong isn't correlating to China as it ought to, perhaps, with the volume of Chinese stocks, but it isn't correlating to anything else either. So so what is it that drives the Hong Kong market, in your view? Yeah, you know, with the, with the Stock Connect, the, the, the prevalent thinking here was that um, um, Chinese investors did, uh, would just flock to Hong Kong because they didn't have the, the great companies listed in China that they do in Hong Kong, the Tencents, the China Mobiles, uh, the Lenovo's. That didn't happen. What happened was they sold out Hong Kong stocks, and I believe they're still selling Hong Kong stocks. A lot of mainland investors are already in the Hong Kong stock market. And a lot of stocks were sold here indiscriminately, and that money moved right into the Shanghai market. Now, that's 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 the, the mindset of the Chinese investor. But how do you sort of justify that? I mean, as Catherine Young of Fidelity said early on the show, uh, very aptly, you know, China is considered to be this big bad wolf, you know, by so many. Yet everybody wants to invest in these China stocks. How does that make sense? No, well, I think it's more the mainlanders buying. Shanghai than foreign investors. There, I believe that's been more of the trade here than, than vice versa. I mean, and, and in fact, it's been sold off. Hong Kong's been used as a source of funds to go into that market. So, uh, you know, and it's such an under-owned market, Hong Kong and Shanghai. It's right now ripe for a huge move. I don't know when it's going to happen, but you could see, you know, our five, ten, five, eight-time earning stocks going to 50 times 
you know, when the when the Shanghai we can dream. investors. We can dream about well, that. Well, I'm, I'm a dreamer. <laughs> yeah. So Francis Lund said uh, earlier this week that he expects the Hang Seng Index to rise to the 25,000 level in February. Um, now, the question is, will it stay or continue to rise? What are your thoughts? I, I, I really don't have um, uh, much thoughts near term with the market. Uh, and I, I find that, uh, I, I, you know, there's so many confluences of events. Today's front page of the South China Morning Post talked about um, bird flu in the U.S., and it came from a Hong Kong person. I mean, there's so many factors that could nail the market down or up. I, I, in the near term, that, that's hard to, you know, for me. I think it's a little getting a little bit overbought, though. I think we could just sit here for the next couple of months in this area. Stuart, what do you think? Are there sort of any way out of these doldrums? Well, yes, there are ways out, of course, and, and volume of money is one of it. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of money being managed in Hong Kong, but a lot of money that is managed in Hong Kong is then channeled into other parts of the region. So that's China, that will be uh, Singapore, Taiwan, Indonesia, Philippines, and so on. Um, the question is whether or not the Hong Kong market has a sufficiently compelling story for analysts and fund managers to buy as opposed to these other places which are looking really very attractive relative to Hong Kong. And I think that's exactly what Brooke's trying to sort of say, that, that, that there are more interesting markets out there right now than Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I would. Um, and uh, Hong Kong certainly seems to be affected more so than others perhaps by these news stories or are we just reading into it because we're sitting here? Yeah, well, we're, we're sitting here, and of course, it is our market, and it's where where we live and and work. But uh, so we are more sensitive to it. But uh, I, I guess you know there are two sides to this. And, and Brooke, you probably look more at the smaller companies in 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 the Hong Kong market. And do you see them to be a little bit more immune? Uh, the risk gain ratios are certainly attractive, Stuart. At these levels, you know, six times earnings, twenty percent, thirty percent growths. I'm buying these in both hands um, because um, I don't know what the catalyst is going to be. If you look back at um, Shanghai's market, what was the catalyst that started it going back up in July last year? Maybe it was the Stock Connect. I don't know. There's going to be a catalyst, and you know, there's a lot of dry kindling on the ground, and something's just a little spark could, could take this market. It turns on a dime in Hong Kong. We could be at 20 times earnings on a – you know, all of a sudden everybody's excited about something. All right, Brooke. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Brooke McConnell, and he is the Chief Investment Officer at South Ocean Management. The Nikkei is down now 85 points to 17,682. Australia's ASX index uh, also down 8 points to 5,503. And Seoul's Kospi also down a quarter of a percent to 1,947. Gold is currently at 1,200. And $91 per ounce in Brent crude oil, $49.60. So, uh, Stuart, we have the FOMC meeting concluding. What are you expecting from that? Um, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> it's a two day meeting to talk through when they will do interest rate changes. And I think the market expects that to be probably from about the middle of the year. 
um, maybe from July, August onwards. Okay. Anything else that we should be looking out for? Well, we had a, a real um, mixture of earnings reports yesterday from technology companies. And on uh, Friday, we got another mixed bag of uh, Facebook, Google and Amazon all reporting. So we could be looking for a bit more excitement and a lot more volatility out of the US. Yep. It's company earnings week. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. That is Stuart Aldcroft, Senior Advisor at City Investor Services and our regular Wednesday co-host. And this is Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off for Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today will be cloudy. It'll be cool in the morning and at night. The temperature right now is 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 82%. And here's the news with Samantha Butler. Survivors of the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz in Poland have urged the world not to allow a repeat of the crimes of the Holocaust as they marked the 70th anniversary of their liberation by Soviet troops. More than a million people, mainly Jews, were murdered at Auschwitz between 1940 and 1945. One former inmate, Roman Kent, told said survivors didn't want their past to be their children's future. I hope and believe that this generation will build on mankind's Great traditions tempered by understanding that these traditions must embrace pluralism and tolerance, decency and human rights for all people. Japan is trying to verify a video carrying a threat to kill Islamic State hostage Kenji Goto and a Jordanian pilot within 24 hours unless Jordan frees an Iraqi woman on death row. Radio Australia's Barney Porter reports. The threat has been made on a new video purportedly from IS. It demands the release of 